everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. I'm here with Andrew Vance of the Choose the Hard Way podcast. Sorry, we've been away for, for a few weeks. I had to go abroad, do some deep, deep research on the, on the London cycling scene. And Andrew has been busy launching a company. Andrew, do you want to, do you want to plug this? I think you had your soft launch today. So this is brand new news. Yeah. So we've just opened up the public beta for the better lab. You can find us at thebetterlab.io where you can sign up for our beta. And what we do is we are guided science back practices to help you sleep better. I mean, as I'm sure as all your listeners know, the number one thing that you can do to improve your health, to feel good and to perform better, whether that's cognitive performance or at your sport, like cycling, uh, sleep's the number one force multiplier. So that's, that's what we're doing. We're helping people to get better sleep. I was hoping you're going to say stay up late and watch the West Coast NBA nationally televised game and drink wine and then wake that's up a, early. But unfortunately, yeah. the science is not pointing towards that. That's a close second. Yeah, okay. I think that that would, that would be a very strong business as well. I, I did. There's a great website. What the betterlab.io, I believe is what it is. But yes, it felt like it was targeted at me. I went there. Some helpful tips saying don't drink so late at night. No blue light before bed. No caffeine, less caffeine. I'm like, ah, this is if I could just strap a big screen TV to my face, lay in bed with like an IV of red wine and coffee. That's how I would like to go to bed. So um, I think this is going to be good product for me to, to kind of optimize my sleep. I'm looking forward to hearing about your experience, but sir, and if anybody wants to give it a try, go to the betterlab.io. The whole experience happens via text message. So you have a personalized onboarding experience. We provide you with recommendations based on peer reviewed science. And we start with the most impactful practice first, and then an AI guide will help you form that practice over time. And then we'll recommend the next practice that will help you. So give it a shot. Love to hear from you. <laughs> it's, it's such a good experience, such a realistic texting experience. I did think that it might be you texting me about my sleep. So it is, it's pretty interesting to do, even if you don't think you have a problem with your sleep, just the, the texting conversation with the bot is, is <laughs> something to behold. But <laughs> Andrew, something's been going on in, in pro cycling the last week. I'm actually glad we waited to record this because I believe it was like Monday, Sunday, Monday, exclusive on Reuters, Saudi Arabia closing in on a deal to create new cycling league slash sources or, or dash sources. And it sounds, everyone felt like everyone lost their minds for about 24 hours. There was this report comes out on Reuters and then the playbook in cycling media in 2024 is it just then gets someone reads it at works at let's say cyclingnews.com and then they write a story about that Reuters story. Someone sees that cycling news story. They write a story about that cycling news story. By the time it filters down, it I, I feel like the nuance gets lost because if you read this Reuters story pretty if you read it closely, there it just says there's a new cycling league uh, like a theoretical league and they want to raise money and someone they could raise money from is a Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabia public investment fund PIF who does a lot of uh, sporting investments and then it says that actually the sources say oh yeah this isn't actually ha this hasn't happened and it may not happen and so mm, I feel about like that? that nuance gets lost when uh when it gets reported and as a, as a journal, as a big J yourself, I know you'd have some thoughts on that. And then also 
it's still unclear to me what exactly is this money for? They're trying to raise 270 million uh, US dollars. What, what, for what? Uh, it's, it's still unclear to me. Do you, do you have any clarity on this? Yeah, I don't know what they're buying. I mean, the, the stories about the stories about the stories, this is like a, a Russian nesting doll situation. The reporting, I think, is reflective of the, um, the implosion and the journalism landscape. I mean, in the last two weeks, we've had massive layoffs at the Washington Post, the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal, and journalism continues to contract. And part of what we see happening is reporting on reporting on reporting. So there aren't a lot of people out there currently talking to actual sources and and doing reporting. They're writing on other reporters reporting. And when then that happens, by the time you get to the second or third layer, who knows what's going on, Spencer. And I think in addition to that, we talked about this back in October, I believe, when this it seemed like a trial balloon was getting floated in the press about this one cycling concept. I believe it was the same Reuters reporter also walking, working off of a single source, anonymous source situation, which very much seems like someone is putting something out there either to influence the potential investor to gain some kind of leverage to demonstrate that there's demand for the business that they're trying to launch uh, and to gauge public sentiment, I think, about how people would feel about the PIF being the major animator and investor owning professional cycling, more or less. And that kind of like went away. Remember, we had Pluga talking yeah. about it. Jonathan Vodders more or less wrote, I think he wrote an op-ed. It had his byline on it in Escape Collective about the need for one unified league. And it, then it kind of went away because I believe about a week later, there was the GCN news that GCN was going away. And then subsequently, we've had the unbundling, then rebundling of all sports media. And now we have the Warner Brothers, Discovery. I'm going to forget ESPN are all now being rebundled into what's basically terrestrial cable. <laughs> we don't know. We don't really know yet how we're going to get cycling coverage. So going back to the question of what is this money for? I'm not really sure because from this second or third source reporting sounds like ASO and RCS are not involved in this one cycling league. So I don't know what you do without having really the two most important media properties and most prestigious races on the calendar involved. And then I think the second aspect of this is even if you did have those races involved, I feel like you'd need full vertical integration uh, similar to uh, Endeavor in the UFC, where you own the talent, you own the competitive platform, you control all the broadcasts and streaming rights. And I'm not really sure how you do that with what's going on with the unbundling, rebundling of of media. And it hasn't been mentioned at all in these deals. It's been more about a unified calendar. What do you think is going on? What's the money for? Yeah, so I've I've done some reporting. I've, okay. I've actually Good done job. reporting recently. I can say, yeah. don't, don't do it. It's too hard. I'm yeah. tired. I flew around the world. But I do have some information on like how to watch cycling. We'll put that in later in the show. I think that's yeah. important. But I'd love so to hear that. Just to give a... Yeah, people are dying to know. You got to wait 55 minutes into a cycling podcast and we'll tell you how you actually watch the race. But yeah. 
just to like a little bit of the concept of one cycling. So when we heard about it in the fall, it was Richard Pluga, the president of Visma Lisa Bike and good friend of this podcast. And I believe like a couple other teams like Ineos, Jen Ratcliffe's Ineos team, a couple of like more forward thinking teams wanted to band together, create a pro cycling collective, I guess, league that would bundle all the small races together. They would be part of like, let's just call it the, the pro cycling league. The branding would be the same. And then most importantly, there would probably be certain standards like you can't run a sprint finish through poles, metal poles in the ground, like how Peter, Peter Stettner broke his leg when they just rooted them through like a parking lot that had metal poles sticking up out of it. Stuff like that would have to be normalized or standardized. You wouldn't be able to do that. I think the main thing they're trying to do is there would they would bundle all those rights and then sell them to a single bidder. So if you want to watch the T, they would just, let's say, bundle every race that's not an RCS or ASO race, which actually you're not left with a ton of races yeah. for those two. But you bundle them all, you sell them to, I don't know, let's just say Max. So they're all on Max and you know where you wa you're watching. Because the part of the problem is you're having all these small races. Like if you want to watch cycling in the U.S., it's actually pretty expensive. It's more expensive than football or basketball because it all gets so fractured. You have to buy like seven different services because they're spread all over the place. It's probably right. not good for actually getting consumers into it. But outside of that... I don't know why they would be raising $270 million. Like, what are they doing with that money? Would they, they would hire like an executive, I assume, to run it. I guess they would put banners together to like, and they would also sell. I think the goal, the idea is they would sell the sponsorship. So instead of like every race going and like courting sponsors and be like, do you want to be the sponsor of the Tour de la Provence 2024? Just one cycling would go to Skoda and say, do you want to sponsor every one cycling race for this year? Like that all makes sense to me. I think that's a good idea. Sure. Why they need this amount of money is unclear to me. I, I don't understand it. I just, I, and it makes, I think it's, you know, it's like one of these financial scams where you're supposed to feel stupid and then you just, you're like, I don't understand this. So sure. Sign me up for 15 adjustable rate mortgages in the year 2007 with no money down. Cause you just feel embarrassed that you don't get it. That's how I feel with this where I'm like, it's like the underwear trolls in South park, like collect underwear. Step two, to be determined. Step three profit. I'm just, I don't, totally get it what it like so where what are they doing with the money why do they need to raise it without aso and rcs what do you have they they are i guess allegedly working with flanders classic flanders classic who has a really good ceo like they probably are the best run right. company of all the race promoters but the problem is that they have a pretty slim profile like they have tour flanders big race they have some of the other classics but I mean, what, what would this even be? I guess every small race plus Flanders Classic bundled together. I, I don't know. I think this is kind of small potatoes. If, if it happened, like you might, you maybe wouldn't even really notice it if you're a casual observer. And then maybe it would produce a little bit of extra money for the teams if they were partners in this. But I don't think, I mean, without ASO, you, you really don't have a lot. I know there's a lot of, um, what I would characterize as anti-capitalist sentiment out there in cycling media. How do you think this would go down for writers themselves? Would this ultimately, if this all went through, if we had this bundling of races under one cycling, we had unification of teams working 
collectively to uh, to get the best deal from this new set of investors or working with the new set of investors. So they effectively own the sport now. Is that going to be good or bad for the labor market? I would think good. I think I'm in the minority thinking that. But my logic is like the Peter Stetna example. That's bad that they rooted them through like an, unsa an objectively unsafe finish. And that's happening because a lot of these organizers are just small. You know, they don't have a lot of resources. They're sending you through. They're just kind of putting these races together by the seat of their pants or that's what the end product looks like. So if there was some sort of standard in practice and it was like a shiny professional experience um, with like a thoughtful calendar, that's probably better for riders. If the teams were able to actually generate money from the sale of the TV rights, that's better for riders because they would make more money in salaries. Like look what's happened to NBA salaries the last 20 years. Like I think the NBA players are 49% partners in the NBA's revenue. So they get 49% of the money the NBA produces in a year. So the more money the NBA makes, the more money directly goes down to the players. That's why like role players will make $30 million a year in the NBA. So, you know, if that was a potential in cycling, I'm sure that would be fantastic. Um, I guess I think the only loser would be small races that don't make the cut and probably consumers because we would, people wouldn't be able to watch races on, on free to air TV, which is another thing I came across in my international travels that kind of blew my mind. You just like plug the TV into the wall, boom, you're getting like channels, you're getting FA Cup games for free. Um, I guess that's nice. And that's the norm in Europe. But that probably wouldn't hold up to uh, this new capitalistic environment where you have to you probably have to pay to watch the races. Yeah, I would love to see writers come out of this being fairly compensated and being better compensated on average than they are now because we do know at the high end of the spectrum we are seeing the the best riders in the sport making around five six million euros and we also know that some of the riders riding in support of those athletes making five to six million euros probably not at the tour or giro but at other races you know they could be making like 100k or perhaps even less than that so I'm just I'm just wondering if ultimately we would see more people making more money, a higher industry-wide uh, base salary for professional riders, or do you end up in a UFC situation where the UFC as an entity is minting money, they're making crazy amounts of money, and they have used their total vertical integration to disempower labor, and you know they do highly compensate a handful of star athletes. But on average, you know, all of those athletes are work for hire. They don't have health insurance. They're doing something extremely dangerous. And I would say professional bike racing is also an extremely dangerous endeavor. And those athletes in the UFC on average are, are not well compensated. I would say that's kind of an anomaly. Like the USC is really the only sport where I can think of that happening probably wouldn't happen in cycling because no one no one is going to be able to vertically integrate the sport like the UFC was just created perfectly at least from like a from a perspective of the shareholders of the UFC where they were able to like create the sport they own the events they own they are like the fighters are their employees but i i mean i don't think ever, anyone's ever going to buy every team i think the teams would be partners in a race series and then there's always going to be some competition you know like 
I don't think anyone's ever going to buy ASO and RCS and Flanders Classics. Like they're always going to be competing against each other. So if you really didn't like how you're being treated in one cycling, you would just go race the ASO circuit for a year, which is the tour and all of their other races. I, I just think it would be hard for anyone. I don't think any there would ever be an organization that owns everything. I would think it would be more like golf where the more you have outside competition coming in, like the more the role players are getting paid because you've seen guys who are making not a ton of money on the PGA tour go to live, which is the, a PIF, um, I guess, investment vehicle, some sort of disruptor they created basically to squeeze PGA so they could buy the PGA tour. But the fact that live exists makes, you know, the salaries go up across the board. I think that's what you would see in cycling, not whatever is going. I don't fully understand how the UFC does that. Just to, so I just wanted to talk for a second about some of the assumptions that we're making in this moment, because it even said this in the Reuters story, and that's the closest thing we've seen to primary reporting on this topic from a single anonymous source. And that story said that one cycling would not encompass, as you just noted, it would not encompass ASO races. It would not encompass RCS races. And it's, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that there is some entity out there with sufficient capital, even though to date the Amory family has not been open to any offers. If there were an offer of such a magnitude that they truly could not refuse what they were being offered and someone did take over the biggest, most major races rather than the converse of that, which is what it seems like might happen, it would be a, a very interesting situation. Yeah, I do think you'd see something like F1 where you know, like Liberty Media owns F1, owns Formula One, but that's just the skin, basically. Like that's right. the brand. Some poor sucker owns the team, and then has you know all those teams are owned <laughs> yeah. by people who yeah, totally. pump money into them. Someone yeah. owns the race. F one yeah. does like own. I think the Vegas race is their own race. But right. you know, like independent companies like own the own and have owned and operated these races for a long time. They can apply to be part of the F one Grand Prix calendar, and then they pay a fee to do it, but that's so much cleaner for Liberty. All they have to do is get the skin right, slap it on every race, and then collect the fees for these races to be part of F1. And they don't have to worry about all of the headaches of actually running the sport. I think that's probably what you'd see in cycling. I guess it's different because if you bought yeah. ASO, you'd be running the tour. But I, I, also, I think someone will eventually buy the TV rights for RCS and ASO and Flanders Classics yeah. and not actually buy those entities. And then those companies will just be happy to, someone cuts them a check, might be PIF. Sure. Someone cuts them a check and then they go out and bundle them and try to sell them to different broadcasters. Yeah. And again, going back to what's happened with our ability to watch professional cycling in the United States, I'm just thinking about the conversations in the past year that we've had and that have been happening in cycling media and media more generally, there was all of the excitement around Unchained and what it might do to drive demand beyond people who are endemic professional cycling fans and that it might perhaps create this frenzy where people typically not interested in the sport would become highly interested, would want to watch races. And it didn't seem like that happened from that 
property. And in fact, an adjacent conversation we could have that I think would be quite interesting is, are we hitting a point of saturation with these docu-series on Netflix about, I mean, there's got to be one coming about professional bass fishing pretty soon. I started, <laughs> watch, you know, I started watching the NASCAR one last week and it's okay. But I think the more of these there are, the more it's highlighting to me perhaps how unique F1 is in terms of its ability to be uh, turned into a really compelling narrative relative to other sports because of the way the sport is set up, the personalities involved, and the ability to create these high-tension narratives with the elements they have that are really simple to understand. It's just not, it doesn't seem to be the case across all sports. And there's not that this. many of them, you know, there's only 20 drivers. Yeah, exactly. In cool locations. Yeah. yeah. And I, I kind of wonder how long are they going to keep doing this with drive to survive? Like, is this just forever? Or are they going to like cut it after six seasons and be like, well, that was, that was a good run. Um, unclear to me, I guess they won't because if people are watching, why not just collect the checks from Netflix? But I mean, we'll get into this too with Red Bull buying uh, 51% of the Bora, Bora Hansgrohe team. That's pretty interesting. And I guess maybe has some sort of broadcast play there. But um, what were you saying? You were talking. I was going to say, so ultimate. Trade. Yeah. So like the, we get carpet pulled, they yank the rug out from under us. And now it's extremely difficult to be able to watch professional cycling and just the, the manner in which this has happened. It just makes me wonder how big of an appetite is there for professional cycling as an entertainment product? And I think your colleagues at the Outer Line made a really great and persuasive point in their uh, essay about this. Like, what's the ROI going to be for the investor? If somebody coughs up $300 million or half a billion dollars, whatever it takes to bankroll one cycling, you know, this is an Oleg Tinkoff showing up to sponsor a vanity team. This is, there needs to be an ROI here. The, there needs to be serious money at a serious multiple on the other side of this deal. And can that exist? Can this be productized in such a way? And is there demand on the audience side sufficient to sustain that level of investment? Probably they, they you probably argue there is because they're not selling the TV rights for enough currently. Um, they basically just give them away, but they do that in part like the tour is not aggressive about the TV rights because they want the teams to be able to get a ton of, you know, to go to their sponsors and say a billion people watch this race. Well, yeah. because it's on free to air TV and someone always maybe has that TV on and then that helps them get sponsors. They don't actually have to make the teams partners. There's a lot of reasons for that. Probably another thing is it's, I would, the sport's probably under monetized, which it's a little sad to think about, but you know, you should probably have like VIP, more VIP areas. Like should Optuez just be a VIP area? I know people would lose their minds if they did that. There's, I, I would assume an investor would think there's a lot of fat on the bone here. We could come in and like, you know, people shouldn't just be standing by the side of the road for free watching these races. They should have to pay to do that. And I know that's like a, no one would like that, but someone could be thinking that. Um, but I just want to be clear about one cycling. Like I maybe am in the minority here. I think, I think nothing's going to happen. I think we're all going to forget about this. Or if it does happen, it's just like they maybe bundle some races together. Um, this writer, Alex Duff, he wrote a great book called La Frick about the, um, the family that runs ASO, owns ASO, runs the tour. 
and basically he had a thread of like what they're doing right now. It's like set up a crisis team, say nothing, build alliances, like keep the French teams close, basically go to the French teams and say, you better not get involved in this or you're never getting invited to the tour again. But basically the whole thesis is just, they don't have to do anything. The time yeah. is on their side. Like they're, they're making a dividend from the company. As long as everyone in the, in the family is happy with that dividend, they don't have to sell to the Saudis. They don't have to respond to, they own the biggest race in the world. It's probably going to be the biggest race in the world for quite a while. So they're under no pressure to, to act here at all. They, they just can sit and wait. And if PIF doesn't invest, one cycling will probably fizzle out because as you say, what some private equity firm is going to come in and give them $270 million and want to return. Like, how, how's that going to happen? Like, where's that going to come from? So I think that this will just eventually fizzle out. Maybe you'll have small incremental changes, you know, like with Velon, like that you could argue, you could make fun of Velon all day, but you also could say that they like normalized the showing of power on TV for a little bit. I guess that got taken away, but it was there for a little bit. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's a great example. I think, I think it's kind <laughs> they of ripped away from us, but yeah. Hey, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it, that's an interesting example because Velon, their position was things like writers data could have great value. Uh, in race footage could have great value. And then those things, I suppose, potentially would have had great value if they'd productized it in an interesting and compelling way and turn it around fast enough with basic yeah. modern television production <laughs> techniques. Instead you would get, I don't know, I don't know about you Spencer, but I actually, I would often go watch those Velon clips after the race of all the end race footage where you see everybody, you know, bumping shoulders and constantly nearly wrecking or wrecking. It was great footage. It just, they didn't find a way to sew it into the viewing experience. Or, you know, they didn't come to an agreement with the rights holders in a way that they could do that. And then it pretty much was worthless. And I, along with, you know, maybe 4,000 other people would watch it on YouTube eight <laughs> months later when we would find it, right? Yeah. And it's one of those things that, unless it's bundled with the original TV rights, it is somewhat yeah. worthless. Like, I, I, there's just a lot. And maybe this is just the broadcast partners, but... Like everyone's making fun of Peacock because they, they put the Chiefs Dolphins game on there and everyone had to pay for Peacock. It's like, welcome to the club, everybody. We've, yeah. us cycling fans have been paying for Peacock for a while, but pretty good. I would say pretty good streaming service. You know, I was late to a Premier League game last, last week, really big game. And they just have in the bottom, it's like, you know, here's five things that happened while you were gone and we'll get you up to speed. Like even cycling, just having some sort of, like, why am I not watching like a nice produced 30 minute YouTube video of like, this is, these are the highlights of the 2023 road season. And like, they send that out and like, that's part of the TV broadcast. It's just a little, you know, you can go watch NFL games the day after the game that don't have any stops. So you can watch every game and each game is like maybe 10 minutes because that's all the action there is in an NFL game. It might sound simple. Like, oh yeah, you're like in. So they should do highlights, but I am kind of saying that they, they don't do, they don't give you like shortened action only reels as much as they should. I mean, other sports are doing it to great success. Well, when would those pro cycling commentators then tell you about <laughs> the, the nap that they took while it wasn't their turn in the booth or the sandwich they just had? <laughs> yeah, that, it would destroy the whole system. Um, that actually brings up a good point about, so now that GCN is gone, I get it's kind of one of these things where is it like GCN's dead 
long live GCN because I don't know if you noticed, but the uh, the women's Saudi tour, I believe, is just on. It's on Max, like the U, the streaming service in the U.S. And it, the breakaways there, it's all pretty much exactly the same. Yeah, still owned by Warner Brothers Discovery. It looks like nothing's going to change. If you live in Europe, you have access to the Discovery Plus app in most countries, I believe, or Eurosport, which is on TV. Kind of confusing. It's like a terrestrial channel, but you can also watch it online. Um, so not much change for you there, except you are paying more. You're paying more money for the same product. Welcome to media in 2024. But in the U.S., it seems like all of Warner Brother Discovery stuff, after a bumpy month of trying to broadcast races and like not actually quite getting it on the app, but if you typed in the right URL and guessed it, you actually could see the race. It's on the app now, and that's all the stuff that was on Warner Brothers Discovery. And people were concerned. I did a, p- a post on this on my newsletter. People were concerned because the Max app does not have like replays of games. If you miss a game, you just missed it. Or like back to 1970. Um, they that must have been some deal they have with the NBA where they're not allowed to replay NBA games because I checked this morning and they do have a replay function for hockey games and cycling. So it looks like right now, if you want to replace your GCN experience, you just have to sign up for the far more expensive Mac service and then pay the $10. They're going to cut out. They give you like the free sports add-on for like a month and then they'll cut that off at the end of February and you'll have to pay an additional $10 a month on top of that 10 to $20 a month, whichever plan you choose on Warner Brothers Discovery. So you're going to be paying like $30 a month for the same thing that you were getting for about $30 a year last year. That's sad. Boohoo. A slightly cheaper way to do it is, um, you know, I've been watching Flow Bikes with a Canadian G- VPN on. Flow Bikes is still expensive, but it's like $150 a year. You can't really cancel it. So if you want to sign up for it, make sure you really like it because you're never getting rid of it. But it's I find it actually to be a pretty good way to watch a lot of those races. Um, I'm willing to pay a little bit more money than a normal person probably because it's my job to watch the races. You can sign up for Eurosport. That gets harder. It is the cheapest way to do it. Um, someone sent me instructions on like how to do it with the Discovery Plus app. It was very complicated where you have to have like a UK or European Google account um a paying agent from those companies from those countries and but you can like and you can turn your vpn on and stream the race on the app that seems like not that many people are going to do that but the big problem with the flow bikes workaround is flow bikes does not have the rcs races so even if you're doing flow bikes you're still going to need you could you could get the tour you could get all the aso stuff because they have that in canada but to watch the Giro and Strada Bianchi and Milano San Remo, I still think you would need either Eurosport or Max in the US to be able to watch that because I think like the Giro will only be on Max. It will not be on Flow Bikes. So I mean, it's basically a short story. Get a Flow Bikes account, run a VPN from Canada. You'll be fine. Or just if you have Max already, you should have cycle. Like if you go to sports, you should have cycling tiles. In there, you can replicate a lot of the viewing you had previously. You will have to eventually pay more, though, and you will still have to use Peacock for all the ASO races like the Tour de France, Paris Nice, the Vuelta, etc. Yeah, get flow bikes, and you can also watch all the jujitsu and amateur paddleball tournaments that you have a lot on there. We'd like to see. There are a lot of probably bowling. I'm not sure if darts is carried there yet. But uh, Spencer, you did mention Milan San Remo, and I know we're not on this topic right now, but I'm going to take us there. 
I was watching actually a Flow Bikes interview with Caleb Ewan, which it was a great interview. He also had that interview on the cycling podcast we talked about on the last episode, but I watched the Flow Bikes interview with great interest because Caleb was talking about how he would like to go for a Milan San Remo win this year. And I was just thinking about last year's event with Ghana doing like 12 watts per kilo. <laughs> I forgot about the- that. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> it was so cool. Yeah, but we had like, we had Ghana, we had MVDP. I also would like to talk about whether we're going to see him have a big classic season or if he peaked too early and it's going to blow up. But does Caleb Ewan have any chance of winning Milan San Remo? Can you, can you like envision a scenario where no. that happens? No, I cannot. I, I cannot. Okay. I know he got close one year. Um, I'm trying to look that up. What year was that? It was he a got few second years twice. He got second twice. The problem with that is I'm vamping until I can get this in front of me so I don't look like an idiot. Um, the problem with that is so he finished second 2018, finished second 2021, pretty recent. You know, that's not ancient history. But it's not, we're not in, I don't believe we're in like Pete Caleb Ewan currently no no yeah and even let's just assume like caleb obviously he can climb the poggio pretty well like he was flying up in 2021 the problem with that is like as we saw last year like those guys are just that's just past his ability even at the best caleb ewan climbing ability the the speed that ghana and vanderpool and van art and pagachar were going up that climb caleb ewan cannot (laughs) keep up with that it's just not gonna happen that had to be one of the great, greatest moments ever in the history of professional cycling. That was one of the coolest things I've ever seen in a bike race. I, yeah, it was. I, I think I, I had a, my wife and I had a child like two days before the race, so I need to go back and rewatch that. But oh, it was so I do good. remember just being like delirious and being like, "I've never seen anyone ride a bike as hard as I'm watching right now." Um, and then the other problem is, even when he has gotten over the climb, you know, he's finishing second because who in their right mind is taking Caleb Ewan to the line? So unless he gets over the Poggio with teammates, I just think he's going to get attacked and attacked and attacked. And, you know, maybe he's faster in a pure sprint than Vanderpool, Pogacar, Van Art, you know, but maybe not. You know, is that guaranteed 300 Ks into a race? Like I'm not, I'm not sure of it. So those guys maybe could even beat him in a sprint or even like Mads Pedersen at the end of a hard race like that. But I just think no one in their right mind would go to the line with them. If he's in that group, they're always going to be susceptible to attacks coming. It seems like the way you win San Remo now is to attack right after the descent of the Poggio. I know Vanderpool attacked at the top of the descent, but you can attack at the bottom of the descent because, and I'm not totally sure why this is happening, but it seems like all you need is one teammate over the climb with you. They pull it back. You win the sprint. Easy, right? But you actually rarely see anyone get a teammate over the climb with them. I guess my theory would be that it's so hard to position that you're riding there. Your team is doing so much work to get you to the front for the final climbs that they're cooked and they can't stay with you on the climb. Um, it's just not feasible. So assuming that he's not going to have a fleet of Jayco riders um, there at the bottom of the descent, I just don't see it happening. I think even... I think the days of sprinters winning Milan San Remo might be behind us because these guys, these new guys are just as fast. Like Vanderpool's not a slow rider. And, you know, Van Art's winning bunch sprints and grand tours. Andy's stronger at these end of these races. Andy's a better climber. Yeah. And we're going to see GC Wout 
at MSR this year. Is he? Let's make sure he's doing it. He might be skipping it. Hold on a second. I think he's going to be on a. Like he's actually on a volcano that weekend. Yeah, so he's doing Algarve and then Omloop and then Kern and then E3, Gent Wolvogem, Dwarves, Tour Flanders, Pay Roubaix. So he's skipping San Remo. Okay. I would assume the thought process there is he's already won that monument. So he's just going to, I think he really needs to win. This is a ridiculous thing to say. He doesn't need to do anything, but he, he kind of needs to win Flanders and or Roubaix. And he's getting very serious about that. And that's what the spring is about for him. Yeah, definitely. And what do you think the spring is about for Vanderpool? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I personally, I did a, so the cyclocross world championships were last weekend. If you the cyclocross the, time trial world championships, yeah, if you miss the race, you turn it on. Vanderpool looks twice the size of everybody else in that field. And you're just like this, you would think he's too old. You know, it's like, this, get this kid out of here. He's way too old to be racing against these other kids. It starts, he's, he's leading from the moment his foot goes in the pedal. He had a gap by the first corner, which was like six seconds into the race. And then he was off. No one could even compete with him. Incredible display. I did do a, the move podcast on it. And I was thinking halfway through the race, like, what the heck am I going to talk about? It's other than, Van, wow, Vanderpool looks pretty fast. But, you know, one interesting discussion I had is about that race is I thought, you know, looking at his season, he's been so good in the middle of the winter, so good at cross, which is not road biking, by the way. These are very short efforts. Like San Remo's six and a half hours, Cyclocross World Championships was 58 minutes or something. Um, very different efforts. I thought that that's negative, going to negatively affect him because then now when everyone else is in the midst of their road preparation, he's then just shifting gears and going into road. And then as well as just the mental drain of like, you know, he did like 14 cross races. And even if he's winning easy, that's not nothing. You know, that's not like the easiest load on him. He's still competing. But Johan Bernil seems to think that it's going to have like a, a push. It's a push. There's no effect on his spring. And then I even, I had lunch with Daniel Freebay from the cycling podcast and he's, he thinks that it's going to help him. But I my, you know, my theory is that this is not that preparing for the classics should not include dominating cyclocross, that those two things are not congruent. But what about you? I think the X factor is going to be injury. I don't know what it is. And I, I don't like saying that someone's going to get injured, but I think he's going to have some kind of overuse injury between now and the classics. Then he's going to have to take time off to rehab the injury. It's likely to be as low back as it has been in the past, even though they're saying it's fixed cross is awfully hard on your low back. Anybody who's done it. And I mean, I, <laughs> I've never done it where I'm pushing like eight watts per kilo out of every <laughs> corner mud, of the way. Yeah. yeah, in the mud. But wow, he made it look easy. I guarantee that was not easy on his body. So I think just at a mus you know, muscular skeletal level connective tissue, that's just a lot of strain to put on your body that it's not encountering when you're road cycling. And that's what I thought. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So I, I just think the wear and tear, I don't know. I I mean, maybe going out and running and you know, mid calf deep mud is, uh, is great for your joints and I'm just not aware of it, but I think that there might be some knock on consequences, not from a fitness point of view, but just his general, um, health as it relates to his joints and that in his low back. So I think that's probably going to be the sticky wicket for old Matthew. Yeah. The sticky wicket. Indeed. Did you see this? Um, I forget his name. There was a Belgian rider that tried to stay with him. 
And like the first half lap, I was like, whoa, like this could be a race. And then it was like, he was ejected from a fighter jet. You know, yeah. Like immediately shot back through the field because yeah. that is how difficult it is for like a professional specialist cyclocross rider to hold his wheel. Um, he just like physically fell apart. Um, so that should give you a feel for how good he is and the power he's putting out. Before we go, I did want to touch on, I forget if we talked about this. So Red Bull buys 51%. Yeah, or let's talk about it. Let's do it. They Now the narrative is new super team. I mean, how many times have we seen that headline? That It was like every other story for a week. It's just like new super team. Yeah. Red Bull's coming in. You know, Matt Potter is back. Yeah. yeah, they're back. But you know, I kind of roll my eyes at it because it's like, well, we don't even know if Red Bull's putting money into the team. They own half the team or 51% of the team, but what are they contributing as a sponsor? Are they cutting big checks? We don't know. Was that their plan? But it is a little interesting. They usually, like the Red Bull model is, they sponsor, like, let's say, big wave surfers. They sponsor a lot of surfers. They just give probably relatively small amounts of money to a bunch of, you know, uh, I guess like, extreme sport athletes to go do their thing. That helps the Red Bull brand because Red Bull, the business model is you sell cheaply produced sugar caffeine water that is pretty generic for high, for high prices. Nice margin there. Well, how do you get people to buy expensive sugar caffeine water that is kind of unremarkable and probably bad for your health? You just like make your brand so sexy and cool that people like are, they just can't stop themselves. They have to buy it. And they have been pretty successful in that because they do a great job of, you know, they have like an in-house, basically production studio that produce, yeah. they, they don't just sponsor the surfers. They then produce movies about the surfers or YouTube, I guess like YouTube shows about the surfers. I eat these things up or their F1 team or their soccer teams. It's just, they create an aura of excellence, I guess, like based on the use of Red Bull, but it's all just kind of lightly implied and you're so compelled by this cool Austrian brand based in the Alps that you have to go buy an expensive bottle of sugar caffeine water. So, but they really only do, I guess, like capital investments, let's call them, into sports that make money. Like, I believe they, I think they make money on the F1 team. Uh, they, they put money into it, but then now there's these cost caps in F1. So they're bringing in more revenue than they are spending. I mean, that's probably ultimately the goal of one cycling, that cycling teams would be spitting off cash at the end of the year in the way that these F1 teams are. The soccer teams they own, I believe they all make money because the model is they find really, really good young soccer players with their academy. They, they do well at the club. So the clubs are doing well and making Champions League, knockout rounds, getting big paychecks that way. And then they sell these young players off and you know, make good money on that. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. But they really only buy teams when they can actually produce cash flow. That's why I'm a little confused about this purchase of Bora. Like, what is going on? Why, why now? A, I guess I get the Bora connection. You know, it's a German team. Red Bull's Austrian. It's kind of uh, it's been a good solid team for a while. Probably somewhat undervalued. They may win the Tour de France. That's the funniest thing about this. Is like. They may right. win the Tour de France based on nothing that Red Bull's done. You know, Red Bull's mm -hmm. coming in, but they've already signed Primoz Roglic. He could win the Tour. Could be a great year for them. But I don't totally see it. Like, do you see the vision here, Andrew? Am I missing something? Yeah, this is like the final scene in The Usual Suspects. Everything is, <laughs> everything's just come together for me, and now I know who Kaiser Sose is in this instance. The thing that I'm thinking about right now is – 
feel like, as you pointed out, Red Bull, best in class at sports marketing. They typically, they're great at identifying talent early that's likely to have a massive ROI later. And whether that's as people who actually win events or just from a style culture point of view end up being highly influential. And if you look at the riders they've selected in professional cycling, like Pidcock and Wout, and versus like, why are they not sponsoring the cyborg Matthew Vanderpool? Well, like that's the answer. Matthew Vanderpool, fantastic talent. Seems like a nice guy, a bit more of a cyborg than, um, you know, Tom Pidcock, who's going out to Tuna Canyon in California and going faster than a motorcycle could go down a hill. Right. And he's probably so, going to be mountain bike Olympic champion too, which they yeah. love like kind of those shoulder disciplines. Yeah, absolutely. So he's like, he's got crossover. He has some mainstream appeal. I mean, like he's just a huge personality. So what I'm thinking about right now is, you know, Spencer, I like to throw out one radical conspiracy theory, <laughs> at least per episode. My new radical conspiracy theory here is maybe Red Bull knows something about the formation of one cycling that we don't know. And they just want to get in early. So <laughs> this is in first- my notes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So that's actually what I think. I think that they're extremely savvy, not just on the marketing side, but on the business side. And I think that this is a very high leverage investment that requires uh, minimal money down for them. I I had the exact same thing in my notes of, do, do they know something is afoot? Yeah. And they're buying into an asset for a very, very low price that everyone is like, why would you do that? That's just a money losing asset. You're going to have to cut a check at the end of the year to cover the cost and you're never going to get a return. Well, maybe they think that a return is coming at some point in the future. And you know what, even if one cycling doesn't work out, even if none of these work out, they've actually done a really good job of minimizing their downside here because the team I talked to, um, higher ups at hands today. So the teams Bora hands grow Bora is a, co- a company that does like cooking fans, very cool company. They do like low profile cooking fans for your kitchen. Hands grow is like household taps. It's like the most um, like industrious uh, sponsored team probably in the in the world tour. But oh, when I, I cook, I always try to do it with ventilation from Bora Hands Grow. They they are finding you should if you have a gas stove, you gotta have ventilation. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Well, ventilation alone is not enough. Everyone should really switch over to electric or induction. Is what research is indicating. That's what they are telling. But, we don't we don't want to get into politics though. Yeah, yeah we don't. I mean, that's there. that's what that's what they say. I'm, <laughs> I'm still cooking on gas out here in Hope, Maine, where we burn wood to stay warm as well, which is illegal in California and most yeah, places. Yeah, that's definitely illegal in Boulder. Yeah. I think that is like one of the worst things you can do. For- for the air but i don't recommend you do this it's just you know there's abundant wood here so uh, destroying the environment go on i talked to people at hands grow and i said because i think the assumption from the outside is so now the team is red bull racing like it's going to be red bull's team i don't think that's true because these sponsors these title sponsors are signed in through 2027 you know they have contracts to be the title sponsors unless they want to walk away from those contracts yeah, I'm pretty sure it's going to be Bora Hansgrow. Maybe Red Bull is like a minor sponsor. They might be somewhere on the kit, somewhere, you know, on, on in the branding of the team. But I think they're going to be a minor sponsor for a while. And the fact that they do have these two title sponsors plus specialized locked in means there is a good amount of money coming into the team. Red Bull might not have to bridge a gap for, you know, four years because the team is bringing in. Maybe if they want to sign like Wout Van Aert, they would have to 
bring out the pocketbook. But if you think about that, even they're, they're already paying. What do we think they're paying Wout Van Art currently? Like, I don't know, like a million, is he getting, making a million euros a year from his Red Bull sponsorship? Right. Like, so they're going to consolidate their spend because they're going to yeah. be paying his salary and then they can subtract they have, the amount that, yeah. I mean, also, if you think about it from the point of view of pretty much any other sport that they're involved in, the cost of buying and sponsoring this entire team could be like one player in another sport. It could be less. I mean, yeah. Who knows what? I mean, kudos to Ralph Dink to start a team from scratch like he did and then build it to the point that they're maybe competing for Grand Tours in 2024 and then he sells 51% of it. You, he probably got a nice premium on that. Yeah. Not really an asset that would be worth anything to many people. Um, yeah, they might have, I, I don't want to speculate on what they purchased it for, but it could be like low, low millions, you know, and that's, that's like nothing to the Red Bull marketing spend because, and I, I kind of hate when people are like Red Bull, they have all the money in the world. They can spend anything. It's like, well, like they are kind of relatively like a, they're not a massive company, but they do have to spend a lot of marketing because their entire company depends on people perceiving the product to be cool. So they do have to right. spend a lot of money on marketing. I th whatever they spent on the team probably was a steal. And then they might not even have to bridge any funding gaps for years because the team already has sponsors cutting checks for them. Boom. Boom. Case closed. <laughs> yeah. And they might, I mean, this is my crazy theory for the year. Primoz Roglic wins the Tour de France. I, I kind of think he could benefit from this Tade double. Jonas, can, can he really win three in a row? That's not easy to do. You know, if Jonas has any stumbles, then Primos is right there to like pick pick the ball up, run into the end zone. All right. While we're making radical predictions, I'll throw another one out there. I see Ghana taking Milan San Remo. Yeah, I love my heart says yes, but I just felt like I kind of feel like that was his best shot last year. Like does I he think get another he got a little taste. Yeah, a taste. <laughs> he got a taste. Like once you get a taste, like you don't stop. Yeah, he could. It, it could potentially be more interesting without Van Art. You know, does that? Yeah. And then let me look at Pogacar's schedule actually, because he has to manage his spring pretty carefully. Or not? Doing, we'll we'll see what oh, he is, irrational decisions he makes. No yeah. idea why he's doing that. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Actually, yeah. I know. I kind of like that prediction. <laughs> why is what is Pogacar doing? Huh. It's and a, it's not, did you watch question. This, this Matt Stevens, like behind the I scenes? I did. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's like, he's really like, kind of just like out there. Dude is just like racing on instinct. He's awesome. Kinda, just seems like a low key fun having guy. Like I kind of thought, I always thought yeah. it was an act, but just seems like that's how he is. Um, no, it's, it seems legit. I mean, he raps as well. He's better than the rappers on Astana. I would say. No. Yeah, I would say so. He <laughs> they spits might... bars. Yeah. Did you, uh, just a little little housekeeping. Did you see who won Tour Columbia today? I didn't. Mark Cavendish. Whew. I was about to say, I've, you know, like, let's make a third radical prediction. I think, I hate to say this because I really do admire Caleb Ewan as a professional. Seems like a nice guy. I think he's got a rough ride in 24 and he's going to have like a Cav comeback here in 25 starting around June. I would have thought that was ridiculous, but watching Cav do what he's doing at the age of 38 is right. pretty mind-blowing. I mean, it's it's crazy. 
just kind of like reset. I mean, he's beating like not the best guys, but he beat Fernando Gaviria. Not not a bad rider. He'd win. He'd win the bus stop ride. Yeah, <laughs> he would win. The, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. It depends. It depends what the course is like. How do you think he would have done at Old Man Winter? Oh, oh my God! He wouldn't have started. He's too smart for that. He can't be fooled into that. I cannot believe. I, and I was debating this with someone. Boulder's a weird place. Like a lot of cyclists, good cycling scene could do a great gravel race. Some of the best gravel I've ever ridden is in my hometown of Boulder, Colorado. Why is the only major gravel race they have in the middle of winter when it is quite snowy and cold here consistently? I, I don't understand that. It, it snowed like a foot of wet snow the day before the race, and it looked absolutely miserable at the race. I don't have the answer. To who that. could have seen it? Who could have seen it coming? Yeah. As yeah. you're going to have to ask the flat irons. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, Cav, Cav would not have started that. He's, he, he would have snuffed that out. I guess my big prediction is Mads Pedersen, rising classic star. Uh, this guy, I, you, you don't really notice it. He's been one of the best stage hunters in the past two years, like, like past the level of Vanderpool and Van Art. Obviously, those guys are doing other things that Matt Pedersen isn't doing. And he's been on fire to start the season this year. You know, maybe he's too fit too early, but you know, maybe he's balancing it just right. Like I see a big classic season for Matt Pedersen coming up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's also historically been anti-volcano. From yes. Whatever yeah. I, I did hear right? about this recently. So, I mean, that indicates to me though, he can go to an even higher level and from a very early age, I mean, won the world championship at 21, right? Was he 21? Let me That's you know, fact, I heard let me of, fact check myself. I, think I don't know. Was. It might not have been 21. He's 28 right he now. Was. Wasn't that 2019 when he won Worlds? That was 2019. So that was, let's say, five years ago. Like 23 yeah. years old. Dude, young close enough. Close enough. He's a young buck. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that he really 20... hasn't, hasn't done any altitude camps would indicate to me that he has some serious headroom once he starts being volcano-based. Yeah. Like, watch out. I Yeah, I totally agree. Heard a funny story about that Worlds in 2019 that he was pre-riding the course with uh, like fenders on his bike, like old school metal fenders, just so he wouldn't get soaked. And like Garrett Thomas was like, look at this joker. Who's this idiot riding around with fenders? <laughs> And then he wins the race the next day. <laughs> That's amazing. And uh, another another housekeeping, Riley Sheehan sitting fifth overall at Tour de la Provence. You could say we gave him his start in this sport by letting him appear on this podcast. So uh, we're I'm going to be watching that closely. And an uphill finish tomorrow. I don't know. I could see I could see a Sheehan win. He could shock shock the big favorites there. Yeah, and we of course have the. The opening of gravel season's right around the corner. We've got BWR Arizona coming up on March third. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know about picking that particular race, but my big gravel prediction that hundreds of people, hundreds care about, dozens probably. Tor Torben Reed is that his name? The Norwegian guy, like big Norwegian dude. He but the he one won, he won BWR Kansas. Yeah. yeah, I think he might be the new guy to beat and gravel like finish the season strong wins big sugar absolutely throwing down the miles in tucson this winter uh, -huh. uh he's going to be coming out fast i would say watch out for that guy keegan's reign could be coming to an end keegan's probably a better climber so right. maybe a race like arizona he's better at did he win that last year 
he didn't I don't believe that he won Arizona did he and then we have to watch the uh, we're gonna watch the lifetime Grand Prix and then yeah we watchables on that yeah I do have I have a lot of gravel predictions maybe I'll save them for a future episode but the one I will share you know watching people's training miles pile up the thing that it's reminding me of you know I had Michael Marks the founder, creator, CEO of the Belgian Waffle Ride series and business over on Choose the Hard Way, my last episode. And, you know, one of the things that he talked about when he was coming up towards uh, becoming a professional triathlete, everybody was doing, you know, 30, 35 hours a week in the late 80s. And that's that was the time of like the big legends, Dave Scott, Mark Allen, Scott Tenley, everybody in San Diego and Hawaii putting in those big, big, big miles. And then the next thing that happened within a couple of years is most of those people washed out of the sport because yeah. they had chronic fatigue because you just can't, the science is there. You can't just keep putting on more and more and more hours and miles. And that's the trend in gravel right now is everybody going out and doing these 30 plus hour weeks. Like you're in, you're out. It's just, it doesn't work over time. And I think we're going to see a lot of people washing out of the sport in the next 12 to 18 months. I totally agree. I think I'm like shocked at the miles and hours these guys are putting in and I don't think it's sustainable. And it is a lot like the triathlon boom. It's funny. I, everything goes in cycles, right? Yeah. I remember San Diego was the big spot. Like that's where you had to train San Diego. Yeah. And then before that it was altitude, but then San Diego got hot. And then now it's back to altitude again. Like, are we all just going to be back in San Diego in five years? Like yeah, this is where you got to train. You got to put the big miles in here. Um, so Keegan Swenson did win BWR Arizona last year. Interestingly, Christopher Blevins second at nine seconds back. Torben Reed third at fourteen seconds back. So rematch twenty twenty four. Now I'm kind of excited. Now I'm unironically excited to watch a gravel race. Uh, it's going to be incredible. I can't wait to see who shows up to watch it a year later on a lifetime Grand Prix highlight video. Well, you can watch BWR uh, Velo Worthy. On, is that the uh, Insta handle? Yeah, on Instagram. Yeah, so really that's, well done. Yeah, I've had. Uh, I've also had Velo Worthy Brian Co. I've had him on Shoes the Hard Way. Had a, he's doing some amazing work to cover those events in a really interesting way. With um, yeah, there are a couple of there are a couple of different um people and agencies that are covering those races on Instagram and doing a great job. Well, I we will let you go. You have a company to run. I have a uh, be, be on the Peloton post to panic right before the weekend. But one thing I wanted to say before we leave, you know, it's like Rafa, easy to make fun of. You know, it's the company of like $500 rain jackets, $200 bibs. I got to say, I have a newfound respect for that company and like why they exist. I, I land in the UK like a week ago. I'm I'm on the jet bridge and you look at the forecast, you're like, it's not that cold, like 50 degrees. I'm just bringing, I'm bringing shorts. Don't even need tights. I can see my breath immediately on the jet bridge. And I realize I'm in a different, it's a different place. It's a fifth, different 50 degrees over there. I mean, I just have to go straight to the Rafa store, buy some thermal tights. First pair of thermal tights I've ever owned. Big fan, by the way, Rafa, good product, but just like the amount of layering and bundling you have to do there to keep the, I don't know. I never saw it rain, but the roads were wet the whole time. Like that type of dampness off of you. It just, I understood. I understand why Rafa was invented right now. 
They make a great gelée. A great gelée. And you have to call it a gelée. I do. I have one. I have one of their high-vis gelées, and I love it. A, they make a great product. I had like a yeah, high-vis rain jacket. And it, I do think it's like, it because you're like, well, I'm in London. It's a lot of cars. It's kind of low visibility. Probably hard to see me. I'm in a bright yellow rain jacket. I will say we were discussing, I think this was off mic, if the cycling culture, we hear a lot about how like in Australia and the UK, they don't like cyclists on the road. So I was expecting the worst. I got to say, at least the UK, like I didn't get honked at once over two days of riding. And you know, I've seen some pretty busy areas. People may complain about cyclists, but it was it was actually shocking compared to the US. We might just be at such a low level of respect for cyclists in the US. We're like lapping the world. So a place that has like bad treatment of cyclists seems nice to us. Yeah. I think the internet's about to be on fire. That was the most controversial bad cycling culture no no that the uk has a very cycling friendly culture because i think there are I don't a lot know of people that disagree with that friendly it's just it's just better than ours yeah and i had a friend yeah. in london explain to me like it is a pain in the ass if they kill you so they just won't do it versus in the u.s yeah like, okay they'll yeah. just run you over and like pay a hundred dollar fine they're probably they'll probably get off with it yeah happens yeah. all the time yeah. So they might not be happy that you're there, but I, I was surprised that the amount of uh, maybe just in, they're internalizing their anger at you, but not out, outwardly expressing it. It's a great positive note to end on, Spencer. Thanks for putting that in the space. All right. Well, thanks, Andrew. And we will talk soon. If you can pry you away from your corner office and your your high rise, your the Better Lab high rise you've just constructed. So <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. 